This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast, episode 36. This week, we honor the year in 2014, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2014. We also look at whether there is a morale clause for getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And our spotlight walk of fame is the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Hollywood, California. This podcast celebrates those who have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll also look at the case for certain artists to be inducted into the hall who aren't there yet. Plus, every week we'll discuss a different musical Hall of Fame, Walk of Fame, or museum and celebrate someone who's been inducted into them. Let's start with our main focus of the podcast, which is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Hall Foundation was established on April 20th, 1983. Former Atlantic Records chairman Ahmet Erdogan was the head of the foundation at the time. Three years later, a committee chose Cleveland, Ohio to be the site of the physical location for the museum over Detroit, Michigan, New York City, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Memphis, Tennessee, and Cincinnati, Ohio. I say physical location because members have actually been inducted into the hall since 1986 before the building was even opened. Cleveland was chosen because of what DJ Alan Freed did to promote rock and roll, including mainstreaming the phrase rock and roll, which was originally black slang for sex, and for also holding the first rock and roll concert. Ground was broken for the building on June 7, 1993. It opened on September 1, 1995 at 1100 Rock and Roll Boulevard on the shore of Lake Erie. The hall gets over 400,000 visitors a year on average. Normal hours of operation are between 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. except for Thursdays when they're open until 9 p.m. They are normally open later in the summer months. General admission at the moment is $30. Children 6 through 12 are $20. College students, first responders, military members, and Northeast Ohio residents are $25. And kids 5 and under Hall of Fame members and Cleveland residents are free. ID is required to get the discounts. Rockhall.com is their website. That's R-O-C-K-H-A-L-L dot C-O-M. And as with all places these days due to COVID restrictions, check with the website for updated information and hours. The year was 2014. Barack Obama was president of the United States. An Ebola virus outbreak killed over 28,000 people in West Africa. The United States imposed sanctions on Russia over its annexation of Crimea. Malaysia Airlines flight number 17 was shot down by a missile in eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 people on board. Indonesia Air Asia Flight 8501 crashed into the Java Sea, killing 162 people. Latvia became a member of the European Union. The Boko Haram terrorist group kidnapped over 275 women and girls from a school in Nigeria. In Pakistan, the Taliban killed 145 children and adults at an army school, and the United States resumed diplomatic relations with Cuba. 
In Flint, Michigan, the town's water supply source was changed to the Flint River, which led to lead contaminating their water supply and started the Flint water crisis. In Ferguson, Missouri, Michael Brown, an unarmed black man, was killed by a police officer, which led to weeks of protests and the beginning of the latest civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter. One World Trade Center, nicknamed the Freedom Tower, opened for business just over 13 years after the September 11th attacks that brought down the original Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, and a spacecraft successfully landed on a comet. The big pop culture craze of 2014 was the Ice Bucket Challenge, where you donated money for each bucket of ice water poured on top of someone's head. The craze raised over $100 million for a Lou Gehrig's disease charity. Famous deaths in 2014 included actors Robin Williams, Lauren Bacall, Sir Richard Attenborough, Bob Hoskins, James Gardner, Maximilian Schell, Eli Wallach, Mickey Rooney, Joan Rivers, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Shirley Temple, Sid Caesar, Anne B. Davis, who played Alice the Maid on The Brady Bunch, actress and comedian from Saturday Night Live, Jan Hooks, Edward Herman, who played the dad in Gilmore Girls and also in the movie The Lost Boys, and actress Marcia Straussman, who was on Welcome Back, Cotter, and also the mom in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Director Mike Nichols passed away in 2014. Other people passing away in 2014 include poet laureate Maya Angelou, fashion designer Oscar de la Renta, Queen Fabiola of Belgium, Washington Post editor during Watergate, Ben Bradley, the wrestler, the ultimate warrior, Boston's mayor for 21 years, Thomas Menino, Washington, D.C. mayor, the infamous Marion Barry, and former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. The Nobel Peace Prize was shared between activist Malala Yousafzai of Pakistan and Kailash Satyarthi of India, for fighting against the suppression of children and fighting for the rights of all children to be educated. The healthcare workers fighting the Ebola virus were named Time Magazine's People of the Year. Chris Helmsworth was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, and Penelope Cruz was named Esquire Magazine's Sexiest Woman Alive. In books, Popular books included Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, The Insurgent Series by Veronica Roth, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, The Fault of Our Stars by John Green, Killing Patton by Bill O'Reilly, Dan Brown's Inferno, and Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. In technology, Comcast bought Time Warner. Microsoft bought the Oculus Virtual Reality Company. And Microsoft also announced that it was killing the Windows XP operating system. Also, Amazon bought Twitch TV. Popular video games for 2014 included Dark Souls 2, Shovel Knight, Dragon Age Inquisition, Mario Kart 8, Bayonetta 2, Destiny Middle Earth, Shadow of Modor, and Hearthstone Heroes of Warcraft. In sports, New York Yankees baseball player Alex Rodriguez was suspended for the entire season for yet another violation of the Major League Baseball performance-enhancing drug policy.
Baseball great Tony Gwynn passed away from cancer, and the San Francisco Giants won baseball's World Series that year. In soccer, Germany won soccer's World Cup, Real Madrid won Champions League, FC Kansas City won the Women's Professional Soccer League, the LA Galaxy won the MLS Cup, Manchester City won the English Premier League, Bayern Munich won the German Bundesliga. Juventus won the Italian League, Paris Saint-Germain won the Paris Soccer League, and Atletico Madrid won Spain's La Liga. In football, Michael Sam became the first openly gay NFL football player. Florida State won the NCAA College Football Championship, while the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl, which was played in Glendale, Arizona, for the 2014 season in early 2015. The Pepsi Super Bowl halftime show was performed by Katy Perry with Lenny Kravitz, Missy Elliott, and the Arizona State University Sun Devils Marching Band. The big football scandal of the year, though, was the initial lack of discipline towards players Ray Rice and Adrian Peterson for various violent offenses against their family members. In basketball, Los Angeles Clippers basketball team owner Donald Sterling was banned for life from the NBA by the new NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, and was forced to sell his team over racist comments that were made by him. The Connecticut Huskies won both the men's and women's college basketball tournament, while the San Antonio Spurs won the NBA championship and the Phoenix Mercury won the WNBA championship. The Los Angeles Kings won hockey Stanley Cup, and the Winter Olympics took place in Sochi, Russia, with Russia winning the most medals. In golf, Bubba Watson won the Masters Golf Tournament, Rory McIlroy won the British Open and the PGA Championship, and Martin Kamer won the U.S. Open. On the women's side, Lexi Thompson won the Kraft Nabisco Championship, Michelle Wee won the U.S. Women's Open, N.B. Park won the LPGA Championship, King Hyog Ju won the Evian Championship, and Mo Martin won the Women's British Open. In motorsports, Kevin Harvick won the NASCAR championship, Will Power won the IndyCar championship, and Lewis Hamilton won the Formula One championship. California Chrome won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness Stakes, but not the Belmont Stakes. Vincenzo Nibali won the Tour de France. The Philadelphia Wings won the National Lacrosse League championship. In tennis, Stanislaw Warinka and Lee Na won the Australian Open. Rafael Nadal and Maria Sharapova won the French Open. Novak Djokovic, the Joker, and Petra Kitova won Wimbledon. And Marin Silic and Serena Williams won the U.S. Open. In television, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon made its debut. Also debuting that year were Chicago PD, True Detective, Late Night with Seth Meyers, Fargo, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Penny Dreadful, Girl Meets World, The Nick, Bojack Horseman, Madam Secretary, Gotham, NCIS New Orleans, Blackish, How to Get Away with Murder, Star Wars Rebels, and Jane the Virgin. 
Shows ending in 2014 included The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, Star Wars, The Clone Wars, How I Met Your Mother, Psych, Californication, True Blood, Boardwalk Empire, Sons of Anarchy, White Collar, Covert Affairs, The Colbert Report, 106 in Park, and The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. The top 10 shows for the 2014 season were Sunday Night Football, The Big Bang Theory, NCIS, NCIS New Orleans, Empire, Thursday Night Football, Dancing with the Stars, Criminal Minds, Madam Secretary, and Scandal. And at the Emmy Awards, Breaking Bad won Best Drama and Modern Family won Best Comedy. In movies, North Korea condemned the showing of the movie The Interview, which was a comedy about a plot to kill North Korea's leader. Mere weeks later, Sony Pictures' computer email system was hacked, releasing hundreds of private, very embarrassing emails about, among many others, actress Angelina Jolie. The biggest movie of the year was Transformers' Age of Extinction. Other hit movies included Interstellar, Maleficent, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, X-Men, Days of Future Past, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. At the Academy Awards, Birdman, starring Michael Keaton, won Best Picture, while Alejandro G. Iñárritu won Best Director for the same movie. Eddie Redmayne won Best Actor for The Theory of Everything. Julianne Moore won Best Actress for Still Alice. J.K. Simmons won Best Supporting Actor for Whiplash. And Patricia Arquette won Best Supporting Actress for Boyhood. Musically, Alexandre Desplat won Best Original Score for The Grand Budapest Hotel, while Common and John Legend won Best Song for Glory from the movie Selma. In music, Taylor Swift released her first official pop album, 1989, which was the biggest selling album of 2014 and eventually won the Grammy Award in 2015 for Best Album. It wasn't eligible for 2014's Grammys because it was released in late October, which was a month past the Grammy Award nominations deadline. Other big albums of 2014 were by Ed Sheeran, Coldplay, Sam Smith, One Direction, Pentatonix, Beyonce, Barbra Streisand, ACDC, Pink Floyd, Lord, and both the Frozen and Guardians of the Galaxy soundtracks. 2014 was also the year of Eminem's Monster with Rihanna, Iggy Azalea's Fancy, Pitbull and Kesha's Timber, Katy Perry's Dark Horse, Pharrell's Happy, John Legend's All of Me, Jason Derulo's Talk Dirty, Edina Menzel's Let It Go from the Frozen soundtrack, Sam Smith's Stay With Me, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, and Megan Trainor's All About That Bass, No Treble. Musical artists who passed away in 2014 included lead singer Dave Brookie of Guar, who passed away from a drug overdose, radio DJ and also the voice of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, and Robin in the Super Friends, Casey Kasem. Also legendary DJ Frankie Knuckles, Bobby Womack, jazz pianist Horace Silver, 
Tommy Ramone of the Ramones, Johnny Winter, Jack Bruce of Cream, Joe Cocker, and also Pete Seeger. At the Grammy Awards, Beck won Album of the Year for Morning Phase, Sam Smith won Record of the Year for Stay With Me, Pharrell won Song of the Year for Happy, and Sam Smith also won Best New Artist that year. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Copenhagen, Denmark, Austria won for the song Rise Like a Phoenix. And at the Tony Awards, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder won Best Musical, and Hedwig and the Angry Itch won Best Revival of a Musical. In 2014, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted the E Street Band into the award for Musical Excellence Category, a new award. In the Non-Performers category, record producer Andrew Lug Oldman and Beatles manager Brian Epstein were inducted into the Non-Performers category, although Oldman refused to attend the ceremony because he thought it was a slap in the face to him that he was also inducted with someone else, let alone with Brian Epstein. In the Performers category, the Hall inducted Peter Gabriel, Hall & Oates, Kiss, Linda Ronstadt, Cat Stevens, and this next group. Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington. Kurt's parents divorced when he was nine, which affected him greatly. He started acting out in school, bullying kids until he himself started to be bullied once he started hanging out with the misfits during high school. Kurt was kicked out of his mother's house when he was 18. He drifted into a couple of relationships, including one with Tracy Miranda, who the song About a Girl is actually about, and also Toby Vale of Bikini Kill, and whose relationship the vast majority of the album Nevermind is about. In fact, once Vale's bandmate Kathleen Hanna spray-painted Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on Kurt's wall. Teen Spirit was the deodorant that Vale used. And now you know where the song title came from for that classic song. Kurt met Chris Novoselic while practicing in a rehearsal space. They formed the band Nirvana, the name of which was taken from a Buddhist concept as Kurt was into religion at the time and wanted what he called, quote, a beautiful name, end quote. They also called themselves Skid Row for a little while, except that there was already a popular hair band of the same name, so that wasn't going to work out long term. Even though Nirvana is known as the classic three-piece lineup, they actually had Jason Everman playing rhythm guitar in 1989. They went through more than a few drummers as well. Aaron Buckard played drums in 1987. In 1988, they went through Dale Crover until they lost touch with him when they moved to Tacoma and Olympia, Washington. Remember, kids, this was pre-internet and cell phones were still for really rich people at that point. So back then, when you lost touch with somebody, you really lost touch with somebody. They eventually did get back in touch with Dale, but in the meantime, they found Dave Foster, then Chad Channing. 
Chad actually was the one who played drums on their EP, Bleach. Channing didn't last that long. Then, after borrowing Dan Peters from the group Mudhoney, they got Dave Grohl. And that move cemented Nirvana's classic lineup. Nirvana also had three session musicians playing on their albums. Mark Pickerel played drums in 1989. Kirk Canning and Kara Shaley both played cello, Kirk in 1991 and Kara in 1993. They toured with four other musicians during the 93-94 tour. John Duncan played rhythm guitar, Lori Goldston and Melora Krieger played cello, and Pat Smear played rhythm guitar. After the demise of Nirvana, Pat and Dave Grohl went on to form another group that was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recently. You know them as the Foo Fighters. In 1988, Nirvana put out some music on Seattle's independent record label, Sub Pop. Their first single was their version of Shocking Blue's song, Love Buzz. They recorded their EP, Bleach, for $606.17 and released it on Sub Pop, who they had signed a contract with by then. They also recorded an EP called Blue, but a couple of things changed their history. The first was that Sub Pop didn't do a lot to promote Bleach, even though it was selling at a decent clip. That did not sit well with the band, whose demos started making the rounds at the major record labels. Eventually, they signed with DGC Records. The other thing was that Kurt and Chris didn't like Chad's style of playing, and Chad wanted to write more music. And one thing led to another, and Channing was out. They got Mudhoney's drummer, Dan Peters, to fill in while they did seven opening gigs with the group Sonic Youth and then looked for a new drummer, and that was when they found Dave Grohl. In 1991, Nirvana got to work on their next album, which they recorded in California and not Washington. They decided that they needed to make a music video for their first song off of the album, Smells Like Teen Spirit. The band wanted a director who didn't have that slick corporate smell to him, as they said, so they settled on Samuel Bayer. Then they got a soundstage in Culver City, California, put out some advertisement for some extras, and even invited their fans to show up for the video shoot during a concert a couple days earlier. On Saturday, August 17, 1991, the band got to work shooting the video. The video storyline was a concert at a high school that turned into total anarchy. They threw in shots of a janitor who was played by trivia answer Totally De La Rosa, along with cheerleaders dressed in black to drive that point home. The big problem with the shoot was how long the extras had to sit there on the bleachers without moving. For those of you unfamiliar with making videos, it sometimes takes forever. You have to do take after take after take after take, and these extras had to sit there for a really long time. So by the time they were allowed to finally get up and film the total anarchy scene, those kids were feeling it. They unleashed and turned the shoot into a mosh pit, which is exactly what Kurt Cobain wanted. What Kurt didn't want, though, was the original edit to the video. He hated it. In fact, he hated it so much that he had it re-edited. He even added that shot towards the end of himself screaming into the camera. 
Finally, the edit was done and the video was released. On September 29, 1991, MTV played Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. It turned into one of those watershed moments in music. It introduced grunge to the mainstream, and the mainstream ate it up. It jump-started Nirvana's career, along with the Seattle grunge movement, allowing groups like Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden to follow. The video itself is considered one of the greatest music videos of all time. Once Nirvana broke through, Alice in Chains followed, along with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, in pretty rapid succession, even though Soundgarden was actually the first of the four bands to put out an album. Within a few months, these four bands and their lead singers became spokespeople for their generation. Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder ended up on the cover of Time magazine, and both Pearl Jam and Nirvana ended up on separate covers of Rolling Stone magazine. Being the spokesperson for Generation X never sat well with Kurt. First, he hated fame. He wanted the band to do well, but he was quiet and an introvert. He didn't want to be the spokesperson for any generation, let alone his own. He also wasn't a fan of a lot of his fans, most of whom he actually found fake and only in it because it was trendy to like grunge music at that point in time. By the way, uh, he wasn't actually wrong about that. He was 100% correct. In typical punk rock fashion, Nirvana rebelled and did things their way. For instance, they were invited to play the MTV Video Music Awards, but they weren't allowed to play the song that Kurt wanted to play, which was Rape Me. When it came time to play, Kurt played the first 20 seconds of Rape Me just to mess with MTV, and then played the song Lithium. Another time they bit the hand that fed them was when they performed on MTV Unplugged. MTV wanted them to perform all of their hits and other songs off of Nevermind. Instead, they only played All Apologies off of the album. The rest of the songs were mainly cover songs, like David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. As usual, Nirvana knew what they were doing, as their Unplugged performance is considered one of the top five greatest performances on that TV show's history. With all of this success, both wanted and unwanted, Kurt turned to one thing that he probably shouldn't have turned to, drugs. Kurt was already using by the time Nirvana hit it big, as he was trying different drugs to try to erase the pain from a chronic stomach condition. By the time Nirvana started touring to support Nevermind, he was into heroin. He actually overdosed once during a performance in 1993, but his wife, Courtney Love, injected him with a drug to get him to be conscious again. Kurt also suffered from depression and bipolar disorder, which did not make things any easier by any stretch of the imagination. Still, Nirvana pressed on and made their next album. In Utero was a complete departure from what the record label wanted. Instead of making Nevermind Part 2, the band went even more hardcore punk. The album was made for $25,000 and took two weeks to record. The album was still a smash right out of the gate regardless of how the record label felt. And there was no stopping the band. For Kurt, though, it was a different story. Nirvana started the European leg of their In Utero tour in early 1994. 
The tour didn't actually last too long. On March 4th, Kurt took some pills that he had been prescribed and chased them down with some alcohol. He was found in his hotel room and rushed to the hospital. And once he got out of the hospital, his heroin addiction came back full tilt. His friends and family held an intervention and got him to finally go to rehab. That didn't take. Less than a week later, Kurt escaped rehab and went back to his house in Seattle. Finally, the world and the pressures that came with it were just too much for Kurt. On April 5th, 1994, at the age of 27, at a greenhouse at his place in Lake Washington, Washington, Kurt penned a suicide note. Sometime afterwards, he took a shotgun to his head and pulled the trigger. His body was found on April 8th by an electrician who had come to the house to do some work. There have been many, many, many conspiracy theories that maybe Courtney Love had Kurt killed because of what some people called a toxic relationship or that someone else had him killed. However, by all accounts from the people who saw him towards the end, Kurt was heavily using drugs and was really depressed. What could have been? Presented for induction by Michael Stipe of 2007 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, R.E.M., and with 2015's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Joan Jett taking over performing duties in the band for Kurt during their induction performance, Nirvana inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2000. And fourteen. Before we look at this week's case for putting an artist into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, let's look and see exactly how artists are normally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The criteria for being inducted into the Hall was originally that, quote, artists had to have had released their first record 25 years earlier and have created music whose originality, impact, and influence has changed the course of rock and roll, end quote. That interpretation has been updated in recent decades to include music that rock and roll influenced like reggae, country, and hip-hop, and also youth culture that music has influenced and vice versa. That's why hip-hop artists get to be inducted now. The different categories that people can be inducted for are for musical excellence, which is for artists, musicians, songwriters, and producers who have had a dramatic impact on music. Also, early influencers, whose artists whose music influenced rock and roll and youth culture like jazz and the blues. The Amit Erdogan Award is also given out, which is named for famed record executive Amit Erdogan and goes to a non-performer who has had an impact in music, like record executives and managers. There's also a category that inducted songs that have influenced music, like The Trogs' Wild Thing or Sam the Sham and the Pharaoh's Wooly Bully. But, of course, the most popular category is a performer category, which has had everybody in it from Elvis Presley to Tina Turner. The different nominating committees decide who will make the official ballots for that year. 
Then the ballots are sent to a thousand musicologists, executives, performers, and other experts. The fans also get a chance to vote, with that vote usually being held on the hall's website, rockhall.com. Then from that, the final inductees are chosen. Now, with all that being said, let us look at the case for this week's entry. Last week, when looking at whether Motley Crue should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I made mention of the fact that Nicky Six of the band, according to an interview that he gave, was told that the band would not be inducted into the hall because of their past behavior. It made me start to wonder who else has actually been told that they won't make it into the hall because of their past behavior. Now, sports halls of fame have had this issue for a while now. Sports halls have kept players out because of past behavior, even though they clearly, due to their stats and importance to the games, belong in those halls. Pete Rose, for instance, was banned from baseball for gambling on games and is ineligible for the hall, even though he holds numerous records. Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds probably won't ever get in because of their involvement in the baseball steroid scandal. Then there are players and coaches who get into their halls, but something happens after their induction. Probably the most famous example of this is O.J. Simpson, who was inducted into the Football Hall of Fame some years before that infamous double murder trial and other issues that led him to enjoy a decade locked in a cell at taxpayers' expense. Basketball coach Rick Pitino was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame a couple of years before numerous scandals temporarily ended his collegiate coaching career. Both O.J. and Rick Pitino, though, were not thrown out of their respective halls of fame. Music is a little bit different. I suppose to have this discussion, we'd have to define what behavior would keep an artist out of the Rock Hall of Fame. If Nikki Six is to be believed, then one reason would be past alleged sexual assault incidences. Okay, that's a good one to start with. Most halls also frown on drug use, so let's throw that one in. I assume murder or attempted murder is included, so let's toss that one in for good measure. So, with the sexual assaults, murder or attempted murder, and drugs... Let's examine this whole thing with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Let's start with Phil Spector, who was convicted of murder, so he would be out. Sexual charges would eliminate Michael Jackson, Chuck Berry, members of the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, along with Elvis Presley, who allegedly groomed Priscilla Presley from when she was in her teens, and a host of other big names. If you threw in drugs as a criteria you would probably eliminate 70% of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, where do we draw the line? Do we have two rules for inductees where if you're already in, we're not going to throw you out, but if you're not already in, then we're going to look at everything that you've done and you better be clean. I'm not quite sure where this criteria falls or if it's even fair to begin with. 
It's not that a Hall of Fame has never thrown somebody out for extremely bad behavior. In Australia, for instance, there was an artist named Rolf Harris. Rolf is a singer-songwriter and all-around entertainer, and at one time, he was one of the most popular entertainers in Australia. His biggest hit was a song you may have heard of, maybe in your childhood or maybe not. Uh, it was a novelty song called Tie Me Kangaroo Down Sport. Tie Me Kangaroo Down. The song actually went top 10 worldwide, including number 3 in America in 1960. And for his musical efforts, he was made a member of the Order of the British Empire, received numerous honorary degrees, and in 2008, he was inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame, which is the Australian Music Hall of Fame. Rouse's first trouble started in March of 2013 in a police investigation called Operation U-Tree. It targeted sexual crimes in the past. Ralph was arrested again in August 2013 and charged with nine counts of indecent assault going all the way back to the 1980s, along with having photos of underage girls on his computer in 2012. Once he was convicted of some of the charges and sentenced to five years in jail, he not only had a lot of those honors given to him stripped away from him, but the ARIA Hall of Fame threw him out of their hall. To date, Ralph and maybe Bill Cosby are the only people that I know of who have been thrown out of any Hall of Fame, Cosby having been thrown out of the Television Hall of Fame, among many other organizations. I could be wrong on that. If I am, let me know. I'd be curious as to who else has actually been stripped of a Hall of Fame membership that they were already in. There's also the way that we as a society tend to forgive people for past transgressions. Actually, that happens a lot. This is, after all, the land of second chances. However, not everyone is afforded the blessings of being forgiven. Back to sports for a second, since there have been more public examples of this. Tiger Woods, for instance, was accused of cheating on his wife multiple times. The sex, according to Everyone involved, including all of the women, was consensual. Yet, people act like he raped every woman he ever met, even to this very day. Kobe Bryant, on the other hand, was accused of rape, and while the criminal case was quietly dismissed when his accuser refused to testify in court, that civil case wasn't. Kobe later settled the case out of court and apologized to his accuser. Yet, Kobe is now officially in the Basketball Hall of Fame, and the rape allegations are barely mentioned even in the hashtag MeToo movement era, especially now that he has been tragically killed in a helicopter accident. So, back to the basic premise. Is there a moral criteria for inducting someone into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? What exactly is this moral criteria, and does that criteria also have to be met by people who are already in the Hall of Fame as of right now. I honestly have no answers to this. I'm just asking the questions and pointing out some different things. I wish I did have the answers, though, but it seems that the Hall voters have, for now, decided to apply the criteria to only new prospective inductees and to let the existing members state 
in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There are many, many walks of fame in the world. There's, for instance, the Aerospace Walk of Honor in Lancaster, California. There's the Almeria Walk of Fame in Almeria, Spain. The Australian Film Walk of Fame in Sydney, Australia. However, when you think of walks of fame, you really only think of one. It's the most famous walk of fame of them all. It is the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The idea for the walk was dreamed up by E.M. Stewart, who was president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce back in 1953. People think that the idea for having stars came from the Hollywood Hotel, which had stars on the ceiling of their dining room. The final parameters for the project were agreed upon in 1955 and presented to the Los Angeles City Council in 1956. Construction for the walk began in 1958 and ended in 1960. There were eight people who were supposed to be given stars first. Olive Borden, Ronald Coleman, Louise Fazenda, Preston Foster, Burt Lancaster, Edward Sedgwick, Ernest Torrance, and Joanne Woodward. However, director Stanley Kramer is credited with having his star installed on the actual Walk of Fame first on March 28, 1960. The popular myth is that Joanne Woodward was the first star when she was the first person to be photographed posing with her star, and that myth has kind of stuck ever since. The walk covers 1.3 miles down Hollywood Boulevard with a few side streets added as space permits. As of the beginning of 2020, there were 2,690 stars. They have since added to that. It is now somewhere north of 2,750. The stars are awarded in five different categories. Film, television, theater slash live performance, radio, and of course music. For our podcast, we'll be only dealing with artists who were awarded in at least the radio and music categories. People who get stars have to pay $50,000 for the upkeep to the star. Every year, the Chamber of Commerce gets over 200 names for consideration for a star, but only 20 to 24 stars are awarded during a normal year. There has only been one star that was not actually put on a sidewalk, and that was Muhammad Ali's because he did not want it to be walked on because he was a champion. He was inducted into the theater-slash-live performance category, and his star is on a wall at Hollywood and Highland at 6801 Hollywood Boulevard. There have also been special stars given out to people who were part of the Hollywood community, such as former Los Angeles mayor, the late Tom Bradley, an honorary mayor of Hollywood and the guy most associated with promoting the Walk of Fame, the late Johnny Grant. There have been stars given as well to people who were not entertainers but had still done important things, such as the crew of Apollo 11. Usually, those stars are put in the live performance category because what they do actually shows up on TV in the form of newscasts. There have been two presidents who were given stars, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. 
Reagan was given one for his radio and acting career, and Trump was given one because of his TV show The Apprentice. Only one star so far in the history of the Walk of Fame has ever been considered for removal from the Walk of Fame, Donald Trump. As of yet, no final decision has been made about removing it. Politics, you know. What's going on? Sexual healing. How sweet it is to be loved by you. Those are just three of the songs that our next artist made famous, and while it seemed to the public that he lived a charmed life, behind the scenes, it was anything but charmed. The same demons that controlled many other artists controlled him as well, and his death, or rather the way he died, was one of the most shocking moments in music history. Marvin Gaye was born on April 2, 1939 in Washington, D.C., his father was a minister while his mother was a domestic worker. He enjoyed singing from a young age when he started singing in his father's church. His father was also extremely strict and would beat Marvin over any childhood transgression. Marvin went into the Air Force right after high school. He didn't really like how strict it was, so he faked mental illness and got a general discharge. He returned to Washington, D.C., where he formed a singing group called the Marquis. While performing around the D.C. area, they came in contact with Bo Diddley, who got them signed to one of Columbia Records' smaller labels. When their first single failed to become a hit, they were dropped off that record label. But right around that time, there was also a group called the Moonglows, and the co-founder of the Moonglows, Harvey Fuqua, liked the Marquis' sound and signed them to an employee's contract. He moved the group to Chicago, Illinois, where they worked as session singers while recording their own material, which was when Marvin started writing songs. During a performance at the home of Barry Gordy, who was the head of Motown Records, Barry noticed Marvin's talent and arranged with Fuqua for Marvin to join the Motown family. Marvin's Motown career started off actually kind of slowly. He was a session drummer while trying to get his records to sell. His debut album, The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye, flopped miserably. It wasn't until 1962 that things started clicking for him. Late in 1962, he released his first solo hit, Stubborn Kind of Fellow. Things started humming right after that. Hit after hit started coming his way. He started doing duet albums. His first one with Mary Wells was a big hit. He had the hit It Takes Two with Kim Weston, and he also had a bunch of hits with Tammy Terrell, including Ain't No Mountain High Enough and Your Precious Love. During a performance together in 1967, Tammy collapsed on stage into Marvin's arms. Tammy, as it turns out, was suffering from a brain tumor. She would have multiple operations and would quit live performing. She would pass away later from brain cancer in 1970, and her illness and death affected Marvin greatly. Marvin recorded What's Going On, but Barry Gordy thought that it was too political. Marvin stopped recording in protest until Motown released the song and also the album. Both the song and the album would go on to be huge hits and are now considered to be some of the greatest music to be ever recorded for all time, 
making many a best-of-all-time list, including number one on the new Rolling Stones' Greatest Albums of All Time list. It was at that point that Marvin knew that eventually he would have to gain more creative control over his music if he wanted to grow and survive. By the time he recorded his last album for Motown Records in 1978, things were not really going well for Marvin. First, he was getting divorced. Second, he was dealing with the IRS over back taxes. And third, and possibly most important, he was dealing with that old musical demon, drugs. Specifically, cocaine. To escape everything, Marvin went to Europe. And When Motown released his last album with them, Marvin realized that they changed the mixing and the editing. He was furious, vowing never to do another album with them. In 1982, Motown released Marvin from his contract. He then landed at CBS Records again, where he recorded his comeback album Midnight Love with the smash hit Sexual Healing. CBS owned Columbia Records, where he had first started out with his other group. During the tour for this album, he became more and more dependent on cocaine. He had gotten sober for a time when he was in Europe, and it looked like he would be okay, but that was unfortunately not to be. It got so bad that it got to the point where he had to move back home with his parents, who had relocated to Los Angeles. A very big mistake, as it turns out. Remember, Marvin and his father had a really bad relationship. Marvin even added the E to his last name of Gay, which was originally G-A-Y, in part to get people to stop making fun of his last name, but to also symbolically get further away from his dad. Marvin decided, though, that after all those years that he wanted to actually make peace with his dad. For Christmas in 1983, Marvin gave his dad a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber handgun to use as protection. Mistake number one was moving in. Big mistake number two was giving the gun to his dad. The drugs had made Marvin suicidal and paranoid. He attempted to commit suicide on March 28, 1984 by jumping in front of a car, but he only ended up with getting a few bruises from it. Go figure. Also during that time, Marvin's parents were arguing a lot, mainly over some missing insurance papers. On April 1st, 1984, Marvin's parents argued over those papers yet again. Marvin tried protecting his mother when his dad came upstairs to confront his mom. Marvin pushed his dad out of the room, told him not to come back in, beat him, and punched him. Marvin followed his dad into his dad's bedroom, still kicking and beating him. Marvin's mother pulled him away and told him to go back into his own room. A few minutes later, Marvin's father came back upstairs and went to Marvin's room. He opened the door. In his hand was that 38 caliber handgun that Marvin had given his father that Christmas before to protect himself. Marvin's dad pointed the gun at his own son and fired twice, once hitting Marvin in his heart and once hitting him in his left shoulder. 
Marvin passed away less than an hour later, one day before his 45th birthday. His father would be tried for murder, but once it was determined that he acted in self-defense, he was given a six-month suspended sentence and five years probation. Marvin's father passed away in 1998 in a nursing home. As with a lot of sudden deaths, there's also a conspiracy theory. This one says that Marvin wanted to commit suicide but couldn't do it himself, especially after failing only a few days before when he jumped in front of that speeding car and actually survived it. The conspiracy theory goes that Marvin purposely enraged his father, knowing that his father would kill him, as his father had stated many a time, that if a child of his ever raised their hand to him, he would kill them. Most parents are only half kidding when they say that. Not Marvin's dad. I'm not sure if Marvin did do that, and the fact is we're never ever going to know. We only have witness reports to go by. What we do know was that the world was completely shocked. I think most people would have believed a drug overdose and maybe even a suicide might have been a little less shocking. But getting shot by your own father? Well, that was a pretty new one. In fact, on MTV's most shocking things to ever happen in music list, Marvin's death ranks in at number eight. Located at 1500 Vine Street on the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Vine and in front of the Chase Bank, you will find Marvin Gaye's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And that is it for the Music Halls of Fame podcast, episode 36. Thanks for listening. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, basically everything having to do with this podcast is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, etc., all under Music History Today. If you would like to support this podcast, our Patreon can be found at patreon.com backslash music history today. We are also on Twitter at music history day, and you can now find us on YouTube. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell anytime you want to know exactly what videos are dropped and when. All of those links can be found in the show notes below. Thank you very, very much for listening.